0: Alrighty, Revelation chapter 16, part 1, the seven bowl judgments. Just to catch up, the book of Revelation, many chapters of God pouring his wrath out on earth. But the way he's judging the earth is in three sets of sevens. There were the seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, seven bowl judgments. The seal judgments, um, he was... Presented with a scroll, Jesus was. And each time he cracked one of the seals on the scroll, a judgment poured out on earth. And then next we saw the seven trumpet judgments. Angels blew a trumpet and God's wrath poured out on earth. Seven, seven. And now the last set of sevens, the bowl judgments. And every time an angel pours out a bowl, wrath on earth. In fact, Revelation says, in them, the seven bowl judgments, the wrath of God is complete. So that's where we're at. We're working our way forward through chapter 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on earth. As I was reading through the wrath of God on earth, it was an obvious parallel to what happened in ancient Egypt. When God took the children of Israel out, He rescued them by pouring out plagues upon the Egyptians. In fact, that word plague, it's used in Revelation for these judgments three times. So the fact that it looks like Egypt is not an accident. God is trying to draw our attention to comparing the two. Quite apparent. You'll see that as I go on. So let's take a look. We're going to look at uh, the Revelation plague. Then we'll look at the Exodus parallel. And then I'll give you some of my thoughts on those. So the first plague, I'm calling it the sore and you'll see why in just a moment. First plague Revelation chapter 16 verse 2. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl upon the earth and a foul and loathsome sore, loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Foul and loathsome sore. You know maybe I shouldn't have used the King James and the New King James there. Maybe I should have gone with the NIV. It says ugly and painful sores. And then the New American Standard said something, and here's what the Good News Bible said. Terrible and painful sores. So what is going on? They're being afflicted with miserable sores. That's what's going on. Whether the word should be ugly or, or difficult, it doesn't really matter. It's not going to be a good time. When I said these tie to the book of uh, Exodus, check it out. Here's the parallel. Then Moses and Aaron took ashes from the furnace. Moses scattered them toward heaven, and they caused boils that break out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians and on the Egyptians. They weren't on the worshipers of God. They were on the followers of Pharaoh. The fans of Pharaoh got the boils. And as we look forward through the book of Revelation, when the beast comes, those who follow the beast... ...will get the boils. In fact, the believers in the beast... ...will get the boils. The parallels start... ...and they just continue. So the second plague... ...as you see, I'm calling the sea plague. Revelation chapter 16, verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea. The sea turned to blood... ...like that of a dead man... ...and every living thing in the sea died. So as soon as I say water and blood... Those of you who know the Passover story, you're like, ah, yes, Steve, you're right. Exodus chapter 7, here's what happened. Moses and Aaron obeyed the Lord. Aaron held out a stick and struck the Nile as the king and his officials watched. The river turned into blood. The fish died. And the water smelled so bad that none of the Egyptians could drink it. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. The parallels are obvious. But as I was giving it some thought, I realized reading through the book of Revelation that this sea being turned to blood is actually going to happen twice. It said earlier in one of the trumpet judgments that the sea, a third of it was turned to blood and a third of the fish died. And Now here we are with the bowl judgments and it says all the sea turns to blood and all the fish die. I was just overwhelmed with a third of the sea turning to blood. Can you imagine the entire sea being blood? Now, some people say, Steve, is it really blood or does it just look like blood? I don't know. But let me tell you this. Well, let me get to that in, in just a moment. Um, when I think of the sea being turned to blood, from, from the perspective of where this was written, they're talking undoubtedly about the Mediterranean Sea. So I looked up the dimensions of the Mediterranean Sea. Now usually we today call this the Mediterranean Sea. But for all we know, they called all of this the Mediterranean Sea. I don't know. But if we just take the part we call the Mediterranean Sea, somewhere in here, we're talking about 965,000 square miles of sea, all turning to blood, which we'll talk about in a moment. Steve, what's 965? I I don't get those those numbers. The average depth of the Mediterranean Sea is just shy of a mile. It's a deep sea. It's got lots of water. 965,000 square miles. If you were to drive 965,000 square miles, let's say you got in your car, it was waterproof, and you're going 65 miles an hour, 12 hours a day, take you three years. If you drove nonstop, No potty breaks. A year and a half. Day and night, day and night, day and night, 65 miles an hour. So when it says the sea turns to blood, those are just a few simple words. But when you grasp what's going on, well, this is a plague of biblical proportions. This is just almost unbelievable. Now, I wanted to tell you, is it literal blood or not? I don't know. It says blood, so I lean towards blood. But, you know, it says the moon turns to blood, too. And we know it's not turning blood. It means it's turning red. So is it possible it's just saying red? Yes, it's possible. But the question is, what's making it red? When the Nile River was turned to blood, again, red, blood, whatever, people would say, oh, that's just a red tide. It's it's algae growth. Yeah, except for rivers don't have red tide. And people forgot... That it wasn't just the Nile River that turned to blood. Listen, the next plague is on the springs of water. Okay? So we go from the the sore to the sea to the springs. Revelation chapter 16, verse 4. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water and they became blood. So you might say there's a sea-wide red algae tide. But what do you do about the springs of water? The water bubbling up out of the ground is going to be red too. I can imagine the non-believers trying to figure this one out. Well, you know, the iron content is mixing with the ore as it oxidizes and it comes to the surface. It comes with a blood color. Never happened in human history. But okay. So I'm going to stick with blood for now. And when it happens, we'll see. From heaven. Egyptian parallel pointed out to you again. The Lord said to Moses... Tell Aaron, take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams, the canals, over the ponds, over the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the wooden buckets and stone jars. Red tide? I don't think so. So you're hanging out at the Nile River, and Moses whacks it, or Aaron wax it with the stick, and it turns to blood. And you're like, whoa. And then you go home, and your swimming pool is full of blood. And you go to your cistern to get some water and it's all turned to blood. You had a bucket standing outside just to catch the rain, it turned to blood. This is the idea. There is no naturalistic explanation for this. This is a divine plague. Why blood? Why didn't he turn it black? Black is ugly. Why didn't he turn it into coffee? I mean, really, why blood, of all things? Is it just coincidental? I don't think so. Revelation chapter 16, verse 6. It says, For they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. These people who are being judged have been murdering God's people, spilling their blood left and Right. I think I've mentioned more than once... the 20th century alone... has seen more Christian martyrs... than the previous 19 centuries before that. And I'm sorry to say it's going to get worse. So these people love blood. It's hard to imagine... but we're seeing that right now in the Middle East. People who just glory in whacking off people's heads... and they're gross, they're disgusting people... they like killing. So God's going to say, you want blood? I'll give you blood... I'm going to turn your entire ocean into blood and every fresh spring into blood. You want blood? Have some blood. And it's just and true, for they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets. A saint, by the way, is simply a believer in Jesus. The soar, the sea, the springs, and now the sun. Revelation 16, 8 through 9. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has power over these plagues. And they did not repent and give him glory. All right, scorched men with fire because of the sun. Steve, is there a parallel in Egypt with this? Yes, there is. You're trying to think, no, there's not. Yes, there is. Exodus 9, check it out. And Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven. And the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire darted to the ground. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire mingled with the hail. And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt... All that was in the field, both man and beast. The hail mixed with fire struck man and beast. They're scorched from the heat of the sun in Revelation, uh, in in Exodus, and Revelation, and in Exodus, they're scorched with the fire from the hail. Now, a lot of people don't know this because some Bible translations don't translate the word fire, they translate it as lightning, which we all get because we live in Tucson and we get hailstorms every year, thunder and lightning and hail. But I checked it out, and the Hebrew word there isn't lightning. There actually is a Hebrew word for lightning in Exodus, and it's not used there. The word that's used there is fire, the Hebrew word for fire. So I don't see any reason to translate it as lightning when the word fire will do nicely. Men were scorched by it. Fire and ice gives it its divine flare. Can't answer that one away. And here we've got... People being scorched from fire again. Now, how is the sun going to scorch people with fire? I mean, we live in Tucson. We think we experience that all the time. You take somebody from Michigan, put them out in our sun, 15 minutes, they're done. Flip them over, get the other side. But this is not that. How is the sun going to scorch people? I don't know. Maybe there's going to be a massive solar flare. Do you know why it's hot in the summer and cold in the winter? The earth spins, but it also wobbles. And when it tips towards the sun, it's summer. And when it tips away from the sun, it's winter. Just that little wobble. Well, maybe the earth's going (coughs) to wobble a little more. I don't know how it's going to happen. I just know it's going to happen. Now, we've got the plague, the parallel, and my thoughts. I gave you some of my thoughts But I've got more thoughts. But I want to push those off until a little later. I put a little smiley face in my notes for later. Michael liked it. (laughs) So he put it in my slides. (laughs) Thanks, Michael. (laughs) So, you never know what I'm going to put in my notes. (laughs) All right, Revelation Plague number 5. This one I'm calling the seat. Soar, sea, spring, sun, seat. I'm running out of S words. This will probably be my last one. Revelation chapter 16, verses 10 through 11. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, the seed of the beast. And his kingdom became full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. Is there an Exodus parallel for this one? Yes, again, there is. It's the plague of darkness. Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 through 22. Now, for those of you who don't know, in the book of Exodus, there are actually 10 plagues. Here, we have seven bowls. So we're not going to get everything to line up just right, and that's okay. God's making a point. He's telling you, I'm basically doing again for the entire planet what I did to Egypt. And it makes me think, what was the end result? Why did God do that? Well, he wanted to punish the Egyptians. But he also wanted to proclaim his name and his glory. And he wanted to save his people. So here, this is happening at the end of Revelation. This is the end. He's proclaiming his glory. He's punishing people. And right after this, it says, behold, all Israel is saved. So he's doing the same thing. And Israel, again, is the focus. Now, where it says all Israel will be saved isn't in this verse. You have to go to Romans for that, and uh, Joel or wherever it's come quotes from. I don't know. All right. So we've got the Book of Revelation plague. We've got the Book of Exodus, the Passover parallel. But I found another parallel. And I want to be careful... It entered my mind. Is it a legitimate parallel? I don't know. You have to decide. Just because it enters my mind and looks like it goes together doesn't mean it should go together. There's a lot of Bible pe- teachers that do that, and they shouldn't do that. There's books written on that. shouldn't do that. You don't teach the Bible and make it, it looks cool, so you teach it as that's God's point. You can't do that. That's called eisegesis, putting into the text. Our way is exegesis, taking out of the text, letting the text speak for itself. I don't know if I'm crossing the line here or not. But I found it interesting, so I thought I'd share it with you. And with that warning, I think I can do that. Exodus chapter 10, verse 23. Oh, I'm behind, aren't I? I have no idea where I am. Yep, there we go. They did not see one another, nor did anyone arise from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. That's from Exodus chapter 10. So it says in the Passover story that the land was turned into darkness and nobody rose from their place for three days. Here's what jumped into my mind. Next time there was darkness over the land was when Jesus was crucified. And it says he didn't rise from his place for three days. And I find that a fascinating parallel, because the whole Passover is a parallel to Jesus, as we teach every year at our Passover Seder. He is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in Scripture. He's also called our Passover. So making this connection, very interesting, but I'll leave it at that. So, the sower, the sea, the springs, the sun, the seat. I put a smiley face on the screen because I told you I had more thoughts, but I wanted to get to them later. It's later. The fourth and fifth plagues, the sun and the seat, they go together. I don't mean they happen at the same time. They might. I don't know how these plagues work. They can happen at the same time and on the same day. Scripture doesn't tell us. The fourth plague, Revelation 16, 8 through 9, says this. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun... And power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat. And they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues. And they did not repent to give him glory. Now we talked about that. But in the fifth plague, it says, Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and the kingdom was full of darkness. I mentioned darkness to you, and it also talks about pain. But how, the, how does the darkness come? You can't have darkness without messing with the sun. So somehow, God's going to do something with the sun. Well, the fourth plague was the sun, and men were scorched with fire. And in the fifth plague, everything goes dark, and they're gnawing their tongues from pain. Is it the same pain that the sun gave them? I don't know. Is it possible that the sun's going to go, and so we're going to have some misery from pain because it's going to swell, and then like a light bulb is going to burn out for a few days? Sure, it's possible. I have no idea. But can you imagine how freaked out people are going to be? You just don't turn off the sun for three days. It happened in Passover for one little area, Egypt. Not the whole world. And it didn't even happen to all of Egypt because the Jewish community had light. When Jesus died, the sun went dark. That's going to happen one more time momentous occasions, to say the least. Now, we've been talking about darkness. I'm talking about literal darkness. But the Bible uses darkness and light as a metaphor time and time again. From almost the very beginning to the very end of the Bible, light and darkness are used in Scripture as a metaphor. In fact, it says there's two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of darkness... ...and there's the kingdom of lights. Colossians chapter 1 is an example. It says, "...giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you... ...to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness... ...and has brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves." So the rescue that Jesus does for us... ...he's bringing us from the kingdom of darkness... ...to the kingdom of light. I want to tell you a little parable... Let me just read it for you. Parable of the Blind Man. There once was a man born blind. As a child, he asked about the heat he felt when he stepped outside. And his mother told him it was the sun. Once he stayed in the sun too long and he got a burn. As he grew, day after day, like everyone else, he stepped outside into the light of the sun. One day, however, probably after a college class he began to wonder if there really was a sun. I mean, people told him it was there. But from his experience, the sun felt just like a radiator or a fireplace. Maybe his mom was mistaken. Maybe there is no sun. Maybe there's a giant radiator in the sky. That makes just as much sense as a giant fireball in the sky. I'm going to ask you a question, and I'm actually going to pause, because I want you to answer it in your own mind. How can the blind guy know? Which is true. Think about that for a moment. The Bible says that we humans are born into a world of darkness. I'm talking about spiritual darkness now. It says in fact we're spiritually blind so how do we know we're in a world of darkness if we can't see it do you believe we're in a world of darkness spiritual darkness most of you probably believe it what about you guys and how do you know if you have no spiritual sight and you can't see it for yourself Jesus said, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Then he goes on to say this in John chapter 3, verse 19. This is the condemnation. I don't have it there. This is the condemnation. That the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. The Bible says, men love darkness rather than light. Darkness stands for evil. Light stands for goodness. Darkness stands for lie. Light stands for truth. The Bible says, men love darkness rather than light. Do you believe it? How do you know? God says our deeds are evil. We love darkness as human beings rather than light. And yet, I hear all the time, ah, man is essentially good. We do bad things, but we're essentially good. A couple years back, I did some research, and in all of human history, I think there's 100 years total that there hasn't been war. But at least we're essentially good. Look at the news reports today. Talk to me about the goodness of man. Do you know one out of every three women will be sexually assaulted? One out of three. But humans are essentially good. It's legal in most of the free world to kill unborn babies. But man is essentially good. Now, here's where some people are going to get really upset God says homosexuality is a sin, and gay marriage is wrong. And yet our society just passed a major law saying let's have gay marriage. Men love darkness rather than light. Well, Steve, it's not bad. They just want to love one another. How can that be bad? You can't see. You're spiritually blind. But here's the thing. God can see just fine. How does that guy know if there's a sun up in the sky? Because he trusts his mother. That's the only way he can know. How do you know if we love darkness rather than light and we live in a world of darkness rather than light? You have to trust your Father. Otherwise you won't know. By the way, I mentioned abortion. I mentioned murder. I, I mentioned homosexuality. Let's talk about heterosexuality for a moment. I wonder if this whole gay marriage thing would have passed if we made a big uproar 20, 30, 40 years ago, whatever it was, when divorce started becoming an easy thing. When we should have said, no, don't make it easy. It's the foundation of society. You realize the Bible says God hates divorce? In all instances, no. But in most instances, instances, yes. And almost every statistic I've seen, the church divorce rate parallels the non-church divorce rate. Obviously, we don't have a problem with divorce. And yet God says it's evil. He hates it. Men love darkness rather than light. That's why we need a Savior. We are so messed up. We don't even know we're messed up. If you believe Jesus, you just have to take his word for it. And then he begins to work on your heart. And you study the Bible. And the Bible teaches you right from wrong. And as you learn it, you go, oh, man. Oh, God, I've been so bent. And then you start striving for goodness and stepping out of the kingdom of darkness. Oh, but the lure is there. Stronger than a heroin addict's lure, it's there. Sin is fun. If it wasn't, nobody'd do it. But God says it's bad. So we tell our kids, don't do drugs. Not only is it bad, but they'll sink their claws into you. You'll end up living on the streets for 30 years... ...trying to kick a habit you wish you never started. That's like sin. It's got its claws into us. That's why Jesus is the Savior. We need Him. It's not all doom and gloom. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. Pun intended, Ted. There's a light at the end of the tunnel, yeah. The Bible says this, John 3, 16... For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I don't have the time to go into it right now. You can do it at home. But you read the the first chapter or so of this book of John. We're only in the third, this quote. Um, Jesus is the light of the world. Men love darkness rather than light. It's a whole metaphor on light in the first chapter. It's pretty cool. For those who choose to follow Jesus, who is the light of the world, he makes us a glorious promise. There's many of them in scripture. I'm just going to read one. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Listen, when I talked to you about all the sin, I wasn't trying to send you home feeling bad. Unless you didn't know what I said was true, then you need to feel bad so you can turn away from it. That's okay. You gotta know the bad news before you know the good news. If you have terminal cancer and the doctor doesn't tell you, you're gonna die. If you have terminal cancer and the doctor tells you and they have a cure for that kind of cancer, you're good to go. So even though the doctor's gotta give you some bad news, he can follow it up with good news for some of the cancer. Well, sin is a spiritual cancer. Definitely terminal for everybody, but there's a cure, 100% cure. So I just told you, you've got the cancer. The cure is Jesus. He's even called the great physician in Scripture. He can save you from all of this. What do we need to do? We need to recognize that sin is sin. And tell God we don't want to follow sin, darkness anymore. We want to follow the light. That you will do the best to follow Jesus you can. Knowing that you will stumble. And that Jesus forgives you. Tell God you believe in Jesus and you want to follow him. That you believe he died for your sins and rose again on the third day. He was in his place for three days and then he got up. Please join me in prayer. Lord, I don't know. Maybe I'm just preaching to the choir. But maybe these words can get through some dull ears. Maybe these are the words to help people see the light before it's too late for them. Lord, I pray for my family, my friends that don't know you. I pray for my neighbors here in Tucson that don't know you. I pray for my fellow human beings who live throughout this world that do not know you. They who love darkness rather than light and don't even know that they're loving darkness. Touch their hearts, Lord. Open their eyes. Let them see the light of the glorious gospel. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One more thing before I turn it back over to the worship team. Um, I don't know who this applies to. But if you've not yet given your life to Jesus, and you want to, let me know. I'll help. And if you've just given your life to Jesus, let me know. I'll rejoice with you. Pastor Jose will get you on a discipleship program. God bless you heart.